So, Lord, what a beautiful occasion we have to come into your presence, to experience baptisms, to see the, the children come forth with palms, celebrating your arrival into Jerusalem. And God, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as the day that you came riding into town as the king, we're quickly reminded that just a few days later, you would be led out of the town, out of Jerusalem, as a criminal sentenced to death. And so God, as we turn to the cross, we don't want to live in the agony. We don't want to live in the despair that you experienced. We don't want to mourn for too long the agony that we caused you. But Lord, it is right for us as believers to reflect on the cross. It is right for us as believers to reflect on what the cost of sin is. And so this morning as this weighty story comes out, I do pray for conviction on our hearts. I pray, God, that you would reveal to each of us any ill way that we need to confess to you. And for some of us sitting in this room, maybe for the first time, we're, we're hearing that we needed a Savior. We're hearing that you were willing to die for us. And so, God, as we dive into this whole area, help us to remember that next Sunday is a very different story. We thank you that the story doesn't end with the cross that it is merely a piece of the story, just another piece that you're triumphant over. So speak to our hearts in exactly the way you need to speak to each one of us this morning. Please, Lord, we need your words. We want to hear what you have to say. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as our series has been going on, we've really looked at these 24 hours that have changed forever, that have changed the world. And even though today is Palm Sunday, we can look back at the moment when Jesus, coming down off the Mount of Olives, coming into town, he he, he rides in on a donkey as, as a king, welcomed, children singing songs, singing his praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest, Jesus is here. They lay palm branches down. They surely have heard the miraculous stories of this man from Galilee, this Nazareth guy, who who makes the weak strong. He makes the lame able to walk. He's given sight to the blind. He's risen people from the dead. And now he's coming into our town. Surely he's going to come in and he's going to expel the Romans. He's going to be the political king that we want, the savior that we're looking for. Surely we can all go to the polls and vote for this person and he's going to change everything. But their definition of a savior was not right. Because you see Jesus, the son of God, being God, being man, came in the form of a lowly servant. Not riding the war horse that a king would ride into battle, but riding the humble donkey that declares victory. He immediately comes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He sees that the church, the the temple of God had become something it was never meant to be. And Jesus begins to clean the temple. He begins to preach. He begins to teach. And from Sunday, when they welcomed him in as the king, until about Tuesday or Wednesday, 
Now they're ready to murder the guy. What happened? What took place? You see, we've been looking at these events leading up to the cross, but today we take a very heavy and hard turn to the cross. It is not a pretty thing. It is not a a, a beautiful thing. It should disturb your soul as we speak about what took place. The chief priests by Tuesday had made a decree with one another. This problem has to stop. We're killing this guy. They said, but we don't want to ruin the festival. We don't want to ruin the Passover. So we're just going to sit back. We're going to let Jesus run his mouth until Thursday after the Passover. And when the Passover feast is done, we're going to get him and we're going to kill him. And they didn't waste any time, did they? Because moments after that, what we now call the Last Supper, that Passover feast where Jesus forever changed the meaning of it, he went to the garden to pray. And in moments... The betrayer led the chief priests and the guard to him. They seized him. And as we heard, they took Jesus and they they led him into this ridiculous trial that if anybody would hear of a trial led in such a way, all of us would scream, this is a mistrial. There's no way that you you can absolutely kill this man for crimes that you're saying he committed. It was a mockery. It was a joke. It was a farce. And they put Jesus on trial and they accused him of of ridiculousness and they accused him of exactly who he was. They said, you say you're the son of God. He says, I'm guilty of nothing because I am who I am. Everybody afraid to touch it. The Romans washed their hands of it. The chief priests thinking they've won their day. They get the sentence they want. And in the first moment of Jesus' sentence, he takes the place of a broken, disgusting sinner by the name of Barabbas. And just as the chief priest didn't waste any time in carrying out their sentence with Jesus, Jesus did not waste any time in being the substitutionary sacrifice for somebody else. They set Barabbas free. They take Jesus to the praetorium. This man that rode in as a king, sentenced to death. They led him to the place of the praetorium. The praetorium is basically a torture chamber. And they led him there. And they sentenced him to be beaten. And I want us to remember that when we sin, when we go against what God has for us, when we miss the mark, There is not some kind of celestial Santa Claus out there or fairy saying, oh, it's okay. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin because when sin happens, there had to be blood shed for the forgiveness of that sin. And for years, the people of Israel would sacrifice animals, but because we are made in the image of God, an image of God had to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. And here comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the praetorium. In the praetorium, you'll see these sites. You'll see these pedestals. And what would happen is, is the Romans had studied how to kill people the most painful ways possible. How to publicly humiliate. Because the Romans wanted to use the execution of their prisoners as a way of saying to everybody else, don't mess with us. If you mess with us, you will pay the price. 
And public executions were something they used to submit nations that they had conquered, to submit their own. And here you have this pedestal in the praetorium, where at the base of it is a ring. And they would take the person who was in chains, they would bend them over that with their back exposed, and they would chain their wrists to the ground. An incredibly difficult posture. They would call the assembly of the praetorium together, which means a battalion of soldiers. They would come together, and some of those men would stand guard because someone about to go into that moment is going to do anything they can to get out of it. They called together the assembly of soldiers because one man doesn't have enough stamina to deliver the beating that is about to be delivered. Have you ever swung an axe or swung a baseball bat to the point of exhaustion? You can imagine what is about to happen. They bring Jesus in. They strap him over this pedestal. They take the cat of nine tails and they begin to whip and they beat him. Laced with lead, laced with glass and stone. They tear flesh from his body. And I want to make no mistake of this. It was not the chains that held Jesus Christ to that podium. Because you see, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid down his life for you and I. And he laid there clinging to the object of his, his, his destruction, clinging to this terrible post. He had your name, your face in his mind. It was not the chains that held Jesus Christ to this podium. It was you. And it was his love of you. The Bible tells us in our reading today in the book of Mark, That they made a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they began to mock him. It says they took a reed and they began to beat him in the head. They continued to punish him and abuse him. And this man that rode into town as the king of the Jews is now being mocked and spit upon. It says that the soldiers led Jesus away to the place that is called the Praetorium. They called together the whole company of soldiers and they put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on him and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they would pay homage to him. They mocked him. They took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him and then they laid him out to be crucified. After receiving the beating that he received, they would then take what's called the patibulum, or a railroad tie. And they would place it upon his back, as they would do the people they would crucify. And he would be forced to carry his cross from this place to this next place. This is called Golgotha. This is known in the garden tomb. This is one of the spots where they say that the Romans would take and they would crucify people at the base of it. Because you see, at the base of this is a a major highway. And the Romans, in their attempts to really let you know that you weren't to mess with them, they would publicly crucify you. And here is where Jesus was crucified with a criminal on either side because it was a well-traveled road. And his people walked by. 
They hurled insults at him. They spit on him. Some of those same children that would wave palm branches would now be hurling curses at him. Why? Why did this have to happen? They took him to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And on his way there, the weight of the cross came down across his back, his beaten and bloodied back. I wrestle with my kids and I get rashes on my knees and it hurts to just put on a pair of pants. I can't imagine the pain that Jesus had as he put that crossbeam on his shoulders with no skin. Again, embracing it because of you, because of me. He falls to his knees and a bystander, a stranger by the name of Simon of Cyrene, helps Jesus Christ carry his cross. Where were his disciples? They abandoned him. It's bad enough he's humiliated. He's spit upon. Now he's alone and abandoned. And those who claim to have loved him the most in the world are nowhere to be found. And our alone Savior goes to the cross. It says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why do you think Jesus would not drink the wine to numb his senses a little bit before going up? Why do you think that? Well, if you remember Pastor Jared's sermon from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, I will not drink of this wine again until it is with you and my Father in the kingdom of heaven, and it is finished. Amen? And Jesus, having an opportunity to numb his senses, embraced suffering rather than go against what he had said. He did not take it, and they crucified him. They divided up his clothes, and they cast lots to see which would, who would get what. Now that was a common practice. It was something the soldiers did. There Jesus is, nailed to the cross, with his arms stretched out wide, his knees partially bent, creating a posture that actually causes you to asphyxiate, causes you to suffocate yourself. And the only way that you can get air is by pushing up on your feet that are now nailed to the cross and pulling up with your arms that now have a nail through them. And so every gasp of air, every word uttered, Jesus would painfully reach up and grab air so that he could speak what he is about to speak. We talk about the seven last things that Jesus says from the cross. And make no mistake... They came at a great cost, and every single one of them has very deep meaning. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law, they mocked him, and they said, He saved others, but he can't save himself. So let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were being crucified next to him also insulted him. What a sight to behold. Our King, our Savior, beaten, defeated, as some saw, dying on the cross, 
insulted by men who were dying next to him. It goes on to say in verse 33, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land, and until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about what it must have taken for Jesus to cry that out. The agony. The pain. When Jesus says these words, these are not hollow, empty words. These are not Jesus becoming defeated and Jesus crying out because he's, he's sad. This is purposeful. Because you see in this moment... Jesus is crying out to God, really demonstrating two things. And, and there's really two, two ways of looking at this passage that we'll get to in a minute. But Jesus in this moment is suffering a physical death on the cross for you and for me. And in this moment, he's suffering a spiritual death as he takes on the sins of the world, giving of himself for you, for me. Why have you forsaken me? And when some of those stood there hearing this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran, filled with a sponge, with with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and he offered it to Jesus. He said, drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And there on the cross... The Savior of man appearing to be defeated and dead. His body beaten, his brow pierced. And it says in that moment that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, And he saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. What did that Roman see? The guard who would stand in front of the cross was usually the person overseeing the entire death squad, for lack of a better term. From hours before, beating Jesus almost to death, to now proclaiming that he is the Son of God. What did he see at the cross that changed him? Because what this man saw at the cross was not a dead, defeated Savior. What he saw at the cross was something very different. And so I ask you this. What do you see at the cross? What lessons do you learn from the cross? Well, I'd like to take us through a couple. The first one is, is that when we look at the story of the cross, what we see is the broken evilness of our human nature, don't we? We see how we can take something that is beautiful and living and something that is godly and we can destroy it. That we oftentimes will hold little value on life. And that as Jesus was suffering, people mocked him. Could you mock a dying man? You might shock yourself. But there on the cross, we see our human condition. We are broken. We are ugly. We're just like Barabbas. At the cross, we see the love of Christ. 
because nobody took his life. He laid it down. No nails, no chains held him to the abuse. He stayed there because he could have at any moment called down the authority of heaven and he could have destroyed this place like nothing we'd ever seen. Jesus could have escaped. He could have sold us all out, but he did not do that. He clung to the cross. He clung to that podium and he gave his life for you and for me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son not to condemn the world, but because he loves the world. Do you get that? That Jesus came not to make us all feel guilty and bad. He came to set you free because he loves you. So at the cross, we learn about the love of Christ. The third thing we see at the cross is things are not always what they seem. And I'm going to spend a little time here. Because again, we see a, a chained Jesus. We see a nailed Jesus, but it was not the nails. It was not the chains. It was Christ who kept himself there. We hear him scream out saying, Eloi, Eloi, Labakta, Samani, whatever. <laughs> why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about Jesus' verbiage. He doesn't say Abba. He doesn't say Abba. He says Eloi. Why would he change the way he refers to God? Well, there's an easy explanation. It's a beautiful explanation. Because you see, Jesus in this moment is actually reciting Scripture. This is not the first time that God has heard this cry. In fact, this scripture that Jesus is quoting comes from Psalm 22. And if you look, this is what Psalm 22 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a Psalm of David. The people of Israel are in great despair. They're in great peril. And in this moment, two-thirds of this song, or a psalm are basically a lament and a cry to God because God is bringing them through a hardship and through turmoil that they can't see the end to. This psalm talks about the pain that they're going to endure, the pain that they're suffering. But the last section of this psalm ends with victory. It ends with God being victorious. And as surely as I say to you, Luke, I am your father, every single one of you thought of Star Wars. When Jesus from the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hearers of that heard this entire psalm. And they know that Jesus is making a statement, not of defeat, but a statement of victory from the cross. Isn't that cool? If that doesn't make you go, oh, that's pretty neat. I don't know what else to do. Because here in this moment, Jesus is teaching us two things. One, things aren't always what they seem. And two, we need scripture in our lives, church. You see, there's a great debate among this passage. Some people will go as far as to say, well, God simply turned his back on Jesus and wouldn't even look at him on the cross. Some say, no, that's not the case at all, that, that God was sitting right there the whole time. And in fact, God was orchestrating it. Well, listen to me, both are right. Because in this moment, Jesus needed to die a human death. But in order to be the sacrificial uh, sacrifice for us, he had to die a spiritual death too. And when he makes this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I honestly believe in that moment that God the Father was standing there in heaven, however he stands in heaven, and he was watching. He was hearing the cry of Christ. But because of the sin that Christ took upon him, God would not answer him in that moment. And so for a lot of us, we struggle saying, how did God turn his back? I would challenge that and say, did God turn his back or did God withhold his hand? 
in that moment. Because you see, this was part of his plan. And in that moment, Jesus is crying out in distress. In that moment, God the Father is not going to place his hands on Christ. But there's a reason. So he dies a spiritual death. He is experiencing a separation with the Father, which is a mystery and a a pain that we can't understand in this life. And at the cross, we learn that things are not always as they seem. John Calvin says it this way. He says, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies only. Through Christ's cry, we don't see an absence of God. We see a presence of God. Henry Nouwen says this, he says, When God's absence was most loudly expressed, God's presence was most profoundly revealed. I'll get back to that in a minute. So at the cross, we see that things aren't always as they seem. At the cross, we see that Scripture is important because Jesus quoted Scripture. Over 70 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to the Old Testament. Listen to me, church. I don't care if you like reading. It may be a discipline for you. You need to know the Word of God. This is a gift from Him. He gives it to us in our moments of needs, in our moments of weakness, so that we can find strength. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needs to find strength in His words, so do you, so do I. Know the Word of God. Study the Word of God. And in your moments of despair, in your moments of weakness, God will work through you. He will reveal Himself through the pages of Scripture, and He will strengthen you. The other thing we see through that is that God wants to hear our prayers. Here's Jesus, His Son, fully God, fully man, crying out from the cross. Listen to me. God wants to hear your prayers no matter how insignificant you may think they are or how, no matter how grand you think they are. God desires to hear you cry out to Him. When you are suffering, when you are in pain, cry out to God. I feel like we have this mindset that we think it's weak of us or it's spiritually immature if we cry out to God and say, Oh, Lord, I need you. I don't know what to do. Listen, you're all train wrecks and so am I. But we're redeemed through what he did. So cry out to the one who can fix you. Cry out to the one who can heal you. When you are in pain, cry out to God. Jesus Christ did. So at the cross, we see how Scripture is important. At the cross, we see how we, God wants to hear our prayers. And at the cross, we learn to never count anyone out. You see, at the cross, we say that God was not there. Some people will make that statement, but I don't think that's true. Because in front of the cross is a centurion who beat Jesus within an inch of his life. And when Jesus asked the question, Why have you forsaken me? God gives him a beautiful answer in the words of the centurion. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how you know God is present. Because there's a centurion that stands in front of Jesus and says, surely that is the Son of God. Why did God forsake his Son? So that you and I could say these words, surely that is the Son of God. In that moment, that centurion confesses Christ. This is the answer that God gives. And I wonder, how many of us stand in front of the cross looking at Jesus, afraid to say those words of, surely this is the Son of God. 
Why did God sacrifice his son? Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? So that you could be saved. Jew and Gentile. It's amazing that it's a Roman centurion. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But he gives his life to Christ in that moment. And God answers in a way that we can never imagine. So at the cross, we learn to never count anyone out. Who's that loved one in your life that you've given up on? Who's that person that you know, that you say in your mind, there's no way a God could ever come to know, or this guy could ever come to know God? I'm going to tell you right now, don't play God. Be obedient to Him. And in God's timing, He will reveal Himself to whomever He decides. Does that make sense? And I'm going to tell you, if you demonstrate the love of Christ, you may be surprised at who may confess Him as your Lord and sa- as their Lord and Savior. Uh, I'm going to go on a rabbit trail. I shared Christ with a friend of mine for eight years, and I finally said, "There's no way." He meets a girl who talks to him about Jesus for ten minutes, and he gives his life to Christ. <laughs> We're not all going to be the reapers. We're not all going to harvest. Be obedient to what God has called you to. Because in that moment before the cross, people are going to confess Christ as their Lord. That's what we learn from the cross. You know what else we learn at the cross? We learn that there's a new life. We learn that it's a new day. Because you see, when Jesus died on the cross, it says in the Word that the the sky grew dark and that the curtain veil was torn from top to bottom. And in just a brief history lesson, the Holy of Holies was the place where God was basically housed. It sat behind a gigantic curtain, a thick curtain. And that's where the priests would then go and and bring their sacrifices to God. And, And the common person was not allowed to be in the dwelling of God. You were not allowed to go before God. But when Jesus Christ died on that cross, that curtain was torn, forever exposing the dwelling place of God to every single one of us. You do not need a man to be your intercessor. The only intercessor you need is Jesus Christ. You confess your sins to Him. And He gives us access to God the Father. That's how we can pray right to God. That's why we don't have to make animal sacrifices anymore because God sacrificed the divine image, Jesus. And we now have access to the Father. We have a new way of life, not a way of ritual and duty, but a way of love, grace, and mercy. You cannot earn the love of God. Guess what? He loves you. If you don't like that, sorry. (laughs) You could take it up with him. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to free you from the bondage of sin that we're in. And so I ask this. will Will you give your life to him? Will you look at the cross of Calvary and say these words? Surely this is the son of God. He knew you by name on that cross as he gave his body for you. What intense words. What intense weight. So as you're living your life and you think about the consequence of your eternal security, I hope you feel the weight that sin is and the love and the grace that God gives us. For each one of us deserves death, but because of what he did on the cross, we can find life through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the lessons of the cross.
We thank you for what you teach us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be obedient, that we would never count anybody out, that we would cling to your words, that we would see a demonstration of your love, that we would reject our human nature, and that we would cling to the fact that you are the Son of God. So we thank you for this drama that you've taken us through. And as you died on that cross, they took your body down, and they put you in that tomb, the love that you poured out could not be defeated by death. And so we thank you for next Sunday. We thank you for Easter, that the story has only just begun. We love you.